I'm rejoicing too. I don't know how long it'll be for, but for now, the Scottish blood has overwhelmed the Korean blood, and that's... So if it's only a temporary victory in that, we will rejoice. You know, history is uh, just loaded with important lessons for us. Looking backwards and seeing the unfolding of God's providence in human affairs provides an incredible wealth of sermon illustrations and life lessons. And we have one of those this morning. On September 30th, 1938, a very important event occurred, and that event was the, the return and, and speech by the Prime Minister of England, Neville Chamberlain. He had returned from a, from a bargaining session with the Chancellor of Germany by the name of Adolf Hitler. And as a result of that bargaining session, Chamberlain came back and held a news conference and announced at that news conference that they had achieved peace for our time. And Chamberlain didn't realize that he had made a bargain with the devil and that within a year, Germany would invade Poland And the world would be plunged into the absolute devastation and horror of World War II. No nation was left untouched by that terrible, terrible event. And you have to ask yourself, um, why did Chamberlain do it? Why why would a man who who is intelligent, loves his country is desiring peace, what, what motivated him to do this? Why did he give in to Hitler? As part of that agreement, Neverland, uh, Chamberlain agreed to the annexation of Czechoslovakia. Why did he do that? Well, we can only speculate to a certain degree, but, but I think there's little doubt that part of the motivation for him was that he remembered the horrors of two decades before. They were only 20 years or so removed from World War I when the European continent was absolutely bathed in blood. The entire generation virtually wiped out. And so I think Chamberlain was was trying sincerely to avoid another war. But his commitment to peace was superficial and it was unsustainable, ultimately plunging the world into World War II. Beloved, what we are most committed to shapes our decisions. It drives us changes our lives. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 13. We're taking up the part two of 
that which we began a week ago. And the question I asked you last week, and I'll ask it to you again this week, is what are you committed to? Chamberlain was committed to peace, even if it was a superficial and unsustainable peace. What are you committed to? What is the non-negotiables of your life? What are the fixed boundaries, the markers, the foundation stones that you build upon? What are you committed to in terms of your Christian life and ministry? This is our final study here in the parables of the kingdom in in Matthew chapter 13. And last week we suggested for you that in the Beginning in verse 47 and running to the end of the chapter, there are three basic principles of Christian ministry to be found here in light of these kingdom parables. Three basic principles. And we looked at the first two of them last week. And and so not to want to endlessly repeat myself, let me just quickly review and catch you up and as we look at the third one in closer detail. But the first basic principle we found in verses 47 to 50, and it was this. We said it was to fish widely. You remember that? We are to fish widely. The text says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. When it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing teeth. We said last time that interpreting this parable, it's important to understand the comparison being made here. The comparison that Jesus is giving is is the scenario of fishing with a dragnet or we said is technically called a seine net, and it could be up to 1,200 feet long, and it's the process of dragging this net through the water, gathering in all that lay before it, and then drawing it up onto the shore and sorting out the fish. The comparison to the kingdom of heaven is the process of fishing with a dragnet. And Jesus says specifically here to his disciples that this this fishing process is divided and there are two parts to it and only one part belongs to them and the other part is off limits. That their part is to fish. It's to fish widely. It's to fish indiscriminately. It's to drag the big net through the water and capture all and let the angels sort it out in the end. And we noted last week that this was an important thing for them to learn, an important lesson to be driven home for them, because these were, many of them, commercial fishermen who frequently fished in this method. And as commercial fishermen, they would understand the the dragnet style of fishing, but they would also understand that when you drag the net on shore, you have to sort out the fish. That's what fishermen do. And Jesus is saying to to them, no, no. Your job is to fish. It's the angel's job. It's God's job to sort it out in the end. That it is not your responsibility to be the fish inspectors. It is not your prerogative to determine who is in and who is out. 
based upon your preferences, your prejudices. God will determine. And this is, this is a vitally important lesson for them. For they are soon to be sent out to establish the church. It will only be a couple chapters later, right, where Jesus will predict his church. And, and by the end of this book, they'll be granted that or given that great commission to go into all the world and make disciples, to fish widely. And most importantly, to include the Gentiles in the people of God. And so they must overcome their prejudices. They must overcome their preferences. They must realize that the the responsibility that has been given to them is to fish. And God takes care of the sorting process at the end of the age. Now, this parable is not a contradiction of of the need for holiness among God's people. It's not what it's teaching at all. What it is teaching is a a prohibition against engaging in that which is not our purview. Judging the the thoughts and intents of human hearts. Looking into the human soul or attempting to look into the human soul and determining who is fit for the kingdom of God and who is not. It doesn't belong to us. It didn't belong to them. It doesn't belong to us. Their job, our job, is to fish widely. Preach indiscriminately. Gather it in. Not judge who is fit for the kingdom of heaven and who is not. And that led us into our second principle, which we said was to feed comprehensively. To feed comprehensively in verses 51 and 52. Jesus says, have you understood all these things? <laughs> and they said to him, yes. Right? They spoke so much better than they knew. And Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is, to, is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. They've listened to his parables here, eight of them that Matthew records. There's a ninth in Mark. And at the end of it all, Jesus says to them, okay, you've, you've heard this teaching. I've given you private interpretation on some of it. Are, you know, have you got it? And they say, oh, yeah, we've got it. We've got it. And Jesus says, fine. And he tells them one more parable. Because the reality is, is they really don't have it. And if it hasn't occurred to them yet, it will soon. And and it's a big question. And the question is, how do you fish? How do we fish widely? If if that's that's what we're supposed to do, how do we go about doing it? Say another way, what is the equivalent of our dragnet? Jesus tells the parable here of the householder to answer that question. We noted last time that that the scribes, the the traditional teachers of the nation of Israel, had become apostate. So they are set aside by Jesus. And he's raised up a new group of scribes, a new group of teachers, his disciples. It is they who are to instruct the nation in godliness and righteousness. That faithful remnant, that is, that will listen to them. 
And he says, this is the process by which you will fish. It's, it's like you're the head of a household and, and you're going to take out of your treasury, out of your storehouse, old things that are needed and new things that are needed. And you're going to put them together to fish. What are the old things? What are the new things? It's the Word of God. It is that which they had previously understood from their Old Testament, what we know as Old Testament scriptures, and the new things are those new truths that Jesus has taught them. And in combination together, this is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the message to be preached. This is the dragnet to be drugged through the water. Old and new. We know the last time again to, to say it another way is that they are to teach the whole purpose of God, the whole counsel of God, as the Apostle Paul says. Acts chapter 20 and verse 27. We noted last time that that kind of ministry commitment is a ministry commitment that we believe and seek to hold faithfully to even here in this body today. And trust that it's true of you. A commitment to the Scriptures, both old and new. The whole counsel of God. Because with it, we fish the hearts and souls of men. And that takes us to the third basic principle and the one where I want to concentrate this morning and that is face reality. So fish widely, feed comprehensively and last face reality. Do this with your eyes wide open. Face the reality of the situation in which God has placed you. Beginning in verse 53 and running through the end of the chapter. Now this is a, this is, acts as kind of a bookend, if you can look at it that way, with, with the earlier account in chapter 12 and verses 46 to the end of that chapter. You might just peek back there and see. So the end of chapter 12, the end of chapter 13, they're, they're almost like bookends and they encompass the parables of the kingdom. And these two bookends convey uh, a very similar message. Back in chapter 12 and beginning in verse 46, we're told there that his mother and his brothers are, are seeking to speak to Jesus. And, and the idea is that they've come to rescue him. They think he's mad. They think that he has been so caught up with religious ecstasy that, that he is uh, outside of his mind. He is taking on the entire establishment of the nation, all of its leadership, all of its long-held traditions. But they misunderstand him. They misunderstand him. They misunderstand his person. They misunderstand his, his mission. They misunderstand how and why he is in conflict. They just want to bring him home and of course, Jesus responds, right? And he says, well, who is my family? And he, he points his hand at his disciples and says, this is my family. This is my real family. You get to the end of chapter 13 and you see a, a similar kind of event. Verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. 
And he came to his hometown. He, he left Capernaum and he, he came to his hometown. That would be Nazareth. He came to his hometown and, and began teaching them in their synagogue. Now chronologically, it's been about a year since Jesus was last in Nazareth. His uh, last time there didn't really go so well. Luke records for us in his gospel in chapter 4 and beginning in verse 16 that that the last time Jesus was in Nazareth and and taught in their synagogue, he taught uh, about the fact that that in the days of of Elijah there were widows in Israel and there were widows in in, uh, the Gentile lands and, and Elijah took care of the widow in the Gentile lands but didn't do anything for the widows in Israel. And he was communicating to them that, that, that God's grace was, on, was not only for the nation of Israel, particularly the nation in rebellion, but it was wide enough to encompass the Gentiles as well. That message didn't go over too good. In fact, it was so poorly received uh, that Luke tells us they, uh, they got angry and they dra- drug him over to the edge of a cliff and they were going to throw him over. And he passed through their midst. So it's been about a year, and you you can, I think, kind of imagine what that might be like, right? Come in and uh, opportunity to teach the Word of God. You you begin to teach the Word of God, and you can read the body language, and it it begins with a sort of a puzzled look, and then it moves on to a frown, and then it goes from a frown to the, you know, dagger eyes, and then... uh, Pretty soon there's people in the back and they're starting to pick up stones and uh, they're tying a lynching rope and, you know, you get the idea. This thing's not going well. But Jesus goes back. He goes back. Maybe he thinks their passions have cooled enough to give it another opportunity. Whatever the case may be, he, he returns to the, to the town of his youth, to the, to the boyhood place where he grew up. And he enters into their synagogue to teach and to make one last offer of the kingdom. But again, they refuse him. Again, they refuse him. And this, uh, by the way, beloved, is the last time in the Gospels it is ever said that Jesus taught in a synagogue. This is it. From this point forward, Jesus is outside of the most fundamental unit of Israel society, Jewish society. All of the structures of traditional Judaism have now excluded him. His last time in the synagogue. But here he is. He's in the synagogue and and he's teaching. Notice their their, uh, response to him, verse 54. They were astonished. They were astonished and they said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Now the question where is not a a question about um, location. It's not a question about location. This This is a question about authority. The source of his authority. It's really back to the same question that, that has been dogging him at this point in his public ministry. The one that came to a head in chapter 12, right? Where he casts out the, the demon and the Pharisees conclude that he does it by the power of Beelzebub. 
This is a question about where does his authority come from? I mean, he obviously has authority. He's doing miracle after miracle, and and they're undeniable, and and he's teaching, and he teaches with such power and and such authority. But where does it come from? Or said another way, who is he? Who is he? Verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? How fascinating. As they are are forced to, to consider the evidence before their eyes. The implications of Jesus' words, the the power of his miracles. And they respond by recounting his very ordinary upbringing. This guy grew up among us. His father was the carpenter. You remember? Carpenter. It's it's just a general term of a a guy who works with his hands. It may be in wood. It may be in stone. His father is just a blue-collar guy. Implication, so is he. May well be that Joseph is dead by now and Jesus had taken over the family business. That's what most believe. You know, we brought our plow into this guy. And he fixed it. Evidently, his mother Mary and his brothers, they don't live there in Nazareth anymore. But his sisters apparently still do, right? His sisters, are they not all with us? How many sisters did Jesus have? Well, at least two, or you couldn't put an S on the end of it, right? Beyond that, we don't know. But his his sisters had evidently married within within the village, local men in the village. They still live there. They're not following him. In fact... John tells us in chapter 7 and verse 5 that his brothers do not believe. Brothers do not believe. It's interesting though, by later, after his ascension there in the upper room, we're told in Acts chapter 2 that that Mary and his brothers are found there among the believers. So, So along the way they come to believe. I think it's after his resurrection. His brother James, he later becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Writes a letter in the New Testament that bears his name. His brother Judas is also known as Jude. He also wrote a letter we find in the New Testament. But his sisters? Don't know. Never any mention of his sisters in church history as being followers of Christ. We don't know the fate of their souls. 
Now, why do they ask these questions? What are they after here? What what moved them? What motivated them to to ask these kind of questions? And we can only speculate a little bit. It It may be some jealousy. You know, local boy makes it big kind of thing. Perhaps. It may be, uh, for some, they're still sort of smarting from a year ago. You know, he was in here and, and he insulted us at the deepest level and we haven't gotten over that. Maybe for others, that it, it, uh, perhaps they just don't understand their own need for redemption and they don't know what this thing's all about. But, but whatever it is, whatever motivates them, they are going to turn away They're going to turn away. Verse 57, they took offense at him. They're going to close their eyes. They're going to put their fingers in their ears. They're going to to turn away. And they're going to justify it by recalling what an ordinary family he has come from. Cannot be Messiah. That's really what the questions are. The questions are really a statement. This one cannot be Messiah of Israel. He's just like us. By the way, this is a powerful apologetic when you think on the humanity of Jesus Christ, right? Those who who knew him growing up well saw him as merely a man. But he's just like us. And because he's just like us, he cannot be Messiah. And if he's not Messiah, then we can just bypass his entire message. We don't have to deal with him. We don't have to deal with what he says. We just shove it all to the side. Beloved, in asking these questions, they're condemning their own souls. Condemning their own souls. This will be their last opportunity. And they want no part of it. No part of it at all. They took offense at him. You can only imagine how deeply grieved Jesus would be at this point. I mean, these are people he grew up with. There would be be boys and girls now, men and women in this community that that he had played with in his childhood. That he had gone to synagogue with. That had had sat together at at the feet of the teachers and heard the scriptures read. His kinsmen, his, his, his friends. And they want nothing to do with him. Nothing. can only imagine how deeply grieved he would be at at such hardness of heart. Such hardness of heart. And so he responds to them with a a proverb. And we need to to see this proverb in in light of the incredible grief that must have weighed upon his heart. This is not just a, a cavalier proverb. Oh, well, you know, whatever. This expresses the the pain of rejection by those with whom he was the closest. Here's his proverb. It's an interesting one. 
He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Interesting proverb. Proverbs are statements of truism. It means they're generally true. They're not absolutely true. There are exceptions. But generally speaking, he says, that that a prophet is widely honored. And by the way, the implication here is that he is calling himself a prophet. That the prophet is widely honored everywhere except by those closest to him. Or said another way, a a person is is most often well-received at home, right? When when life is going bad, where do you want to go? You want to go home. And he says that's true for most people, unless the person is famous. It's kind of an elevated personality. Been, been sort of set apart from other people. If that happens, then, then the reverse is often true. That everybody will accept you and everybody will speak kindly of you and so forth until you get home. And then they don't want you. It's kind of an observation on human life, actually. It's Jesus' final assessment of the village of Nazareth. A prophet has been in your midst, and you want no part of me. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. Mark says he could not do many miracles there. It's not speaking about Jesus' power or authority. Both Mark and Matthew are are speaking about the reality that that Jesus was not a showman. That that he just didn't go places just doing miracles. They had a purpose. And the purpose of the miracles was to attest to who he was. He did kingdom miracles. They certified his message as Messiah. The people were to search the scriptures. They were to see the fulfillments of the Old Testament prophecies in the miraculous ministries of Christ. And they were to conclude, this is Messiah. But now their minds are made up. They'll accept anything, any explanation other than the right one. And at that point in time, there's no more miracles. No more miracles. They've got enough evidence He's not going to give them any more. His true identity has been made manifest among them, and they have refused it. No more light for them. They fall under the same kind of, of terrible judgment that we read in chapter 11. Beginning in verse 20 where it says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, 
that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You could fill in Nazareth as another one of those cities. Terrible. Terrible, terrible unbelief. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? I think we need to face the reality, beloved. We need to face a, a spiritual reality. And the, and the reality that we need to face is that worldly popularity and biblical fidelity frequently do not align. To be faithful to God and to the Word of God frequently puts us on a collision course with this world. It's just the reality of how it is. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're on a collision course. We need to face the reality of that. If we are living a, a distinctively Christian life, it, it's inevitable that it, we will be unpopular. It's inevitable. And the sad reality is that frequently those who we were closest to growing up may be the source of the greatest opposition we feel. The closer we draw to God through Christ, the bigger the gap will be between family members, those whom we love. Listen, if it was true of Jesus, what makes us think it won't be true of us too? There's a dynamic going on. Kind of a spiritual, relational dynamic. If we don't face the reality of this, there's going to be a tremendous temptation to compromise our Christian convictions. Why did Neville Chamberlain negotiate with the Chancellor of Germany? Because he wanted peace. He didn't want to fight. And so he thought if he could just make peace with this guy, everything would be all right. And that same kind of desire often stalks us. We're, we're, we're interested in a, in a superficial peace or harmony. Peace in the home, peace in the family. And so we don't speak for Christ. We hide our light under a bushel basket, right? Now, Jesus is not giving permission here to live like a jerk. I think we should establish that reality. Okay? We need to consider the possibility if we're having relational troubles with people. Before we're quick to say it's a result of our Christian commitments, we ought to at least allow some self-examination that maybe it's a result of the fact that we're a jerk. And maybe we've, maybe we've used our our, our Christianity as a veneer to cover up our own selfishness. And they see through it. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm too busy. I, I can't, you know, I'm so involved at church. I have no time for any kind of family commitments. You know, I've got to serve the Lord. So we miss people's birthdays and all kinds of important family type events. And then we say, well, it's, you know, it's, we're Christians. It's just got to be the way it is. No, it's not how it has to be. We need to be careful in all of this. Can't be always so busy with the church. There's no time for people, particularly those that we're close with or grew up with. But we do need to recognize the, the reality is that for those in our families who are, who are not part of the family of God is that we're moving in different directions. See, this is the reality. Is nobody ever stands still. Nobody ever stands still. It's like two boats, and, and they're, they're drifting apart, moving in opposite directions. To draw near to Christ is to draw away from the world. To reject Christ is to move further and further into darkness. And that reality at the home front can can sometimes cause those who know us best and have known us longest to be least tolerant of us. This this, uh, impact of moving towards Christ and, and away from the world can have a devastating effect in the realm of marriage. I was thinking about this this week and the truth of it all, and, and I thought, wow, such pain, such pain. I mean, in the providence of God, uh, a man and a woman marry, and then later one comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the other doesn't. When that happens, there, there, is a, there is tremendous sorrow and sadness and grief that comes. It's a difficult situation. It's a situation that needs to be handled carefully with, with grace, with wisdom, with patience. Then there are those who go out and marry unbelievers. Those who allow their affections to be captured by someone whose whose fundamental core base commitments are antithetical to Christ. I've heard the story over and over again from people. They tell me, well, you know, we're going to work it out. We're going to work it out. It's going to be okay. But, beloved, it's not going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. It is a serious, serious mistake. You young people who have yet to find your life partner, you need to be super careful in this area. You need to make your commitments up front, those, those things you will not negotiate, because if you do not, and you allow your heart to become engaged with someone, the the emotions of it all begin, and it's so hard to turn back. That's when people begin to rationalize and say, well, you know, 
they're, they're, they're kind of Christian. You know, they, they say they love Jesus and, and they go to church with me. That's not Christian. That's a superficial harmony. It's very, very, very unwise. Very unwise. To date someone outside of the faith. I'd go so far as to say it's potentially sinful. Particularly if you know better and do it anyway. It's a serious matter. A very, very serious matter. It's a behavior I believe that should be avoided at all costs. It would be better to remain single your entire life than to marry an unbeliever knowingly. And it's hard. It's a hard reality, beloved, but listen to me. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that means all flesh and blood relationships are come under the kingdom of God. Maybe need to be sacrificed for the kingdom of God. Don't make the sacrifice harder than it has to be. The pain that can come into an existing relationship based on our commitment was a pain that Jesus knew. He knew it. And we can needlessly intensify that pain ourselves if we, if we get entangled in the affairs of the heart. So please, if I can say it this way, he who has ears to hear, you fill it in. Let him hear. Let him hear. Well, there are eight, according to Matthew, eight kingdom parables here in chapter 13. In all of them, Jesus has been has been teaching and he has been challenging his disciples. And through them he has been teaching and he has been challenging us. Down at the base level of our commitments. He's saying to follow me means there are, there are new attitudes that you need to adopt. To follow me means there are, there are new methods you must adopt. To follow me there may even be new relationships. In other words, an entirely new way of life. The old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. And that's true for you and I. We need to fish widely. We need to fish widely. We cannot allow our own preferences, our own prejudices to prejudge who can come into the kingdom of God and who cannot. We need to feed comprehensively, meaning we need to teach the whole counsel of God. We need to be people of the book. We need to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That includes Old and New Testament. We can't avoid the topics that are hard, that are, that are spiritually challenging, that are offensive to people. We need to teach what God says. And finally, we need to face the reality that following Jesus Christ 
it will mean you are not going to be popular. If popularity is what drives you, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. They are incompatible. That painful reality is different for all of us. For, for some, it's going to strike home. For some of you, it's right now. You're involved in, in some painful, painful relationships that, that originate because of your commitments to Christ. For others of you, maybe you haven't experienced it yet, but trust me, you will. You live long enough, you will. Where you're going to need to say yes to Jesus and no. To someone who you care a lot about. And it's going to be hard. But may God grant us his mercy and grace to be faithful to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time in the parables of the kingdom. Thank you for the lessons we've learned along the way in these last months. Thank you for this very direct reminder here at the end of the chapter the terrible price that that your own son paid to be obedient to you to, to follow the Father's will. And our own recognition, Father, that if we are his disciples and, and his family and the world treated him thus, why would we think that it will go any better for us? Oh Lord, it is only your kindness and, and mercy and grace that we do not face these difficulties all the time. But Lord, we know those who have lived long enough know that that the challenge does come. And I pray, O Lord, for those who are in the midst of the challenge right now, that you would strengthen them in the inner man to remain true to Christ. And for those who have yet to experience it, may you help them to place their foundations deep upon the Word of God. So that when the trial comes upon them, they will be prepared. Bless your people, O Father. Help us to be a holy people. Given over entirely to you. May you grant what you require of us. In Jesus' name, amen.